Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you're about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Make sure to subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr. I'm the Director of Product Marketing here at Yield Street. Today, I'm joined by Jeff John Roberts, the executive editor of a leading crypto publication, Decrypt.co, and author of Kings of Crypto, a Harvard Business, View, Business Review Press publication. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey Peter, good to be here. Yeah, we're excited. I certainly, you know, crypto DeFi uh, continues to be a large part of the conversation. But maybe before we jump in, you could walk everyone through a little bit about your background. Yeah, I was a tech reporter for a long time, and around 2013, I discovered crypto as a reporter in New York. And there's something called Satoshi Square, which involved people meeting in New York's Union Square and buying and selling bitcoins like with hundred dollar bills in the open air. And ever since then, I've sort of found crypto fascinating, and I've covered you know its evolution into uh, into what it is today. I was a longtime writer at uh, Fortune magazine, and more recently, I went over to Decrypt, which, uh, as you said, is sort of the, the leading crypto. Uh, publication for uh, for web3 and all that good stuff. And then so I add decrypt, you know, maybe you could walk everyone through a little bit about, you know, what kind of the the mission is there. Um certainly, you know, is it mostly just news journalism or are there other features as well? Um, yeah, I mean, I went over there with uh, our editor-in-chief, Dan Roberts. We're both sort of from the mainstream media world. This has been more of a trend. A lot of sort of mainstream financial journalists are going into crypto full-time, partly because the section sector is so hot, but also there just seems opportunities to do good work there. Because at the you know, in the early days, while there was some good Bitcoin and crypto reporting, a lot of it was sort of by shills, people who held you know currencies and used the journalism as an excuse to kind of pump it up. So we saw a need for kind of impartial journalism by people who understand it. It and like it, but also are not there to shill it. So that's that's what we do. And uh, you know, decrypt is a reliable source of you know in the weeds DeFi stuff, but also the broader stories of crypto and its evolution. And then in terms of just kind of education around kind of crypto and DeFi and Web three, who do you think crypt, uh, decrypt kind of speaks best to, and who might be most interested in in the content? Yeah, I mean, you know, I confess I'm still learning crypto. The learning curve is so, so steep and it evolves so fast, you know, just in the last year, you know, trying to get your head around, you know, how DAOs work and the NFT explosion and all that. So we have a good uh, learn pages on our site, which are very helpful if you want to dive in. Um, and I, you know, I encourage everyone to, you know, to just keep uh, reading all of it, you know, read us, read Coindesk, read the New York Times. Um, crypto is everywhere these days. And we do our best to explain these sort of complicated topics in, uh, in plain English. But some of our writers, too, go really deep in the DeFi rabbit hole. 
holes. And I confess, you know, you know, I can barely keep up. So there should be a, something for everyone there. Yeah, cool. And I want to kind of explore that a little bit more. And also, uh, you know, certainly spend some time talking about your book. But before that, let's go back to Satoshi Square. Maybe you could walk everyone through what, what it was like back in 2013. And also, you know, this concept of buying Bitcoin with $100 bills in an open per in-person market kind of seems really far away from kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin and crypto ethos now. Yeah, I think people forget Bitcoin almost started as an underground thing. You know, once upon a time, if you wanted to buy Bitcoin, you'd go to, you know, um, I can't remember what it's called, like my Bitcoins or local Bitcoins. You just meet people and, you know, just sort of trade, you know, trade it for cash, or you would have to wire money to, uh, you know, to somewhere overseas and they would send it back to you with a code and you just hoped it showed up, you know, in your account. But, uh, you know, there's just a lot of you know, scams and hustles. And when I got into it, it was right around when Coinbase was emerging and they made it sort of easy to, uh, to buy Bitcoin. It was a big kind of heresy at the time because Coinbase is a centralized server. And a lot of the OGs say, hey, this is not what it's about because you shouldn't let anyone else hold your private keys to own your crypto. Uh, and so Satoshi Square was kind of a reflection of that, you know, earlier ethos where, and it's the funniest mix of people. I mean, New York City, you have it, everyone anyways, but there was the hardcore Bitcoiners who are these kind of crypto anarchist punks, you know, with dreadlocks and just, you know, hanging out in New York. But the other people there were like Wall Street traders too, because, you know, the Wall Street guys like to trade and a lot of them got into it because they know money. So you'd, this ridiculous spectacle of like these dudes in like $5,000 suits, you know, stacks of Benjamins buying Bitcoin, you know, in the park from these, uh, these kind of, you know, anarchist punk people. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that was the flavor of it. Not everyone's an anarchist punk, but you know, a lot of the early Bitcoiners were kind of, you know, sort of, uh, pretty serious believers. And, uh, and also a lot of them, you know, really paranoid about the privacy and had you know gone all in on this alternate system of money. So, but again, this was in 2013. So, you know, heck it's almost 10 years ago, as you say, things really changed. But what what kind of was it at you know at the time that really made you believe that this could be something that kind of like sticks and might become you know really a, a kind of disruptive and future form of tech and payment systems and everything else like you know I, I imagine you saw it in the energy and how people are interacting with it but like what really gave you the confidence to know like this is going to be a big thing. Oh yeah, no, I'd like to say, you know, I knew this was going to be big. I didn't, I just covered tech of different sorts. You know, so this was the era of like mobile games and, you know, things like that was like the big deal. And then Bitcoin kind of came up there and this is part of my job. I was like, okay, let's go cover this. And I, you know, and I was so clueless. I bought one Bitcoin from Coinbase and, uh, you know, cause I thought I would need Bitcoin at the Satoshi Square thing to maybe like buy t-shirts or cupcakes or something. I was that clueless. Um, but the more I covered it and I think what really sort of, gave me an idea it would be here to stay with the people i just these really smart original people who absolutely believed in it you know i i can't say i did you know i thought it was cool but i think you know both then and now the caliber of people who are going deep into crypto sort of tells you where the future is i mean now of course it's every you know really smart coder and tech executive and now finance person, you know, they're all jumping from their traditional Silicon Valley, Wall Street jobs and going into crypto. And I think that's indicative of where the future is and why crypto has been so vibrant. And then, you know, kind of over your, your time covering the space, you know, from 2013 to present, you know, what would you say were kind of some of the really big milestones or stories that you kind of covered or at least were aware of along the way that really you think really solidified its, its kind of status in the world? 
It depends how far back you want to go. Because I remember in the early days, there's a popular genre of article of like, Bitcoin's dead, Bitcoin's a fad. And I've seen like over a hundred of those headlines and Bitcoin just kept coming back. But to be fair, in the early days, I mean, you know, just the disasters that would kept happening, like the Mount Gox hack, I think that was in uh, 2014, you know, for going way back for those who aren't familiar, Mount Gox used to be the place you get Bitcoin. It was this, it was this place in Tokyo run by this flaky guy. And it, you know, basically was the exchange for most of the Bitcoin in the world people would wire him money through like you know western union wire transfers or however they did it and then someone hacked it and stole all the bitcoin and you know bitcoin fell like you know calamitously and that was the sort of next essential moment would they recover and it's been proved again and again bitcoin always comes back and generally comes back stronger so that was a kind of early milestone moment and then of course i think you know the the advent of ethereum is what was the big game changer and you know sparking the uh, the ico boom of 2016 and 2017 where you know we just saw like hype and ridiculous projects of all sorts but that's when you know so many mainstream people got the first taste of crypto and then it kind of came back with the vengeance now then i think there's sort of no doubt it's here to stay i mean just look at the super bowl you know when you got sort of quarter of the ads are for crypto so so that's a bit of a rambling answer but those are some things that stick out in my mind i, I honestly and just on the crypto.com stuff um i someone has explained to me where all this money is coming from because it seems as though they are the major sponsor of just about everything going on especially in the sports world right now yeah i don't quite get it either uh peter the you know because crypto.com kind of came out of nowhere yeah. and you know, like Coinbase has been around for a while. FTX, which is, you know, the other one, they're, they're putting their, you know, logo on every, you know, baseball uniform. It takes big bucks to do it. And Crypto.com buying like the, I can't remember if it's the Clippers or the Lakers and yeah, all Staples these sports Center, deals. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not cheap, you know, so, but I think just, there's just so much money to be made in it from you know, the trading that, uh, you know, obviously they've got the funds to do it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's the money's for real. Yeah. So kind of curious, you know, you mentioned the advent of kind of Ethereum as being one of those really crystallizing moments as well. Um, you know, just kind of looking forward a little bit. Um, and I do want to circle back, um, you know, some of the recent news, especially around kind of the recent Biden executive order. But just kind of curious, you know, like when you kind of project out, what, what are some of those catalysts that you think will kind of take crypto in particular kind of to the next level over the coming three or five years? Like what are the things that kind of are percolating in the background that if they get resolved, you think it just kind of takes another uh, big boom? Uh, well, I mean, I think keep your eye on Washington, D.C., and just there's kind of like a, a global war over currencies. I mean, because Bitcoin and other cryptos are an alternative form of payment. I mean, duh, we all know that. But it's becoming more serious given, you know, the conflicts with China and with Russia on the world stage, because China and Russia have long had the goal of disrupting the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. I'm kind of, you know, going wonky here, but this is important because everyone around the world, if you want to send money, or borrow money, US dollar is the medium of exchange across the world. And that's an enormous advantage for the US because it means that we can borrow cheaply in the States and gives us incredible pressure or leverage over the world's financial system. So, you know, this was happening already. China and Russia both resented this and were trying to prop up other systems of money. You know, China obviously wants it to be the yuan people use, but, you know, it's, that hasn't, you know, really succeeded. But crypto is another angle that, you know, is sort of this, this realm of finance outside of government control and for the u.s government it's been a huge challenge there's a lot of people in this government who are afraid of this and are worried it threatens the dollar and want to kill it whereas i think more enlightened people are like wait a minute this is a huge innovation and just like the internet freaked people out 25 years ago but the u.s managed to pass smart laws to ensure 
most of the you know tech and internet companies are in Silicon Valley, um, and that's been a huge boon, obviously, for the American economy. Whatever you think of you know Silicon Valley or the internet, you know it's here to stay. And I think that's what's going on with crypto right now. We're seeing this kind of battle for the future of money, and for better or worse, I think crypto is going to be a big part of that. So, so kind of thinking about that, what do you think you know the U.S.'s best strategy is to kind of encourage this innovation, but also make sure that they don't necessarily disrupt you know what is at least a status quo, but also truly a beneficial component of both the U.S. government and, in turn, in many ways, also passed down to sort of its citizens as well. Yeah, I think the you know the Treasury Department's concerns are legitimate. You know, you want to keep control over the money supply. It's the you know two most important you know sources of power for any government. You know, or king, or however you want to describe it, are the armed forces. You got a monopoly over the army, but also you've got a monopoly over the money. That's what sovereignty is. That's what power is. And the nature of Bitcoin and crypto is you know decentralized power, and that's threatening. But I think the more enlightened policymakers will realize this is not going to go away. You know, people have tried to snuff crypto since the beginning, and it just keeps you know evolving and getting bigger. So I think the enlightened thing to do is to you know, and this is going on already, working with you know through the major good actors and legitimate companies and building you know infrastructure to harness the sort of the the power of blockchain technology, which is really just such a superior form of finance than you know conventional analog ledger systems on which a lot of our banks and stock exchanges run today. And I'm kind of curious on that part, right? Like, you know, I don't think um, there's many observers who find Washington Washington at present to be particularly functional, um, and things really seem to fall down quite often on these partisan lines. How do you uh, sort of feel or, you know, what, what can you provide some insight into how either the parties or who are kind of really the people championing uh, championing this kind of effort into a more digital future? And, you know, how how do you think it gets through Washington in a, in a kind of a strong way? Um, yeah, that's a good question in that, you know, it's a hot issue right now. And, you know, I don't want to sound ageist or something, but the reality is you've got a lot of very old people who, you know, are in power. Nancy Pelosi's 80, Janet Yellen's in her mid-70s, Joe Biden is 80 or so. And these people just don't really know or care about crypto. They're not familiar with it, so they're more inclined to see it as a threat. You know, the biggest nemesis is probably Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, a lot of people respect, some don't. But she's been on this crazy anti-crypto crusade, but she is also not a young person and prefers to see it as, you know, simply a, a source of crime. But since she has a lot of sway in the, in the Democratic Party, that's been sort of their line. Republicans have been a little more open to it. But the interesting thing that's happening is young Democrats, including progressives, like people like AOC, are seeing the potential of crypto. It's because people their age use it and the opportunity for alternate sort of, you know, fun, you know sources of finance and financial inclusions. Because for a lot of poor people, you know, and it's, we've got a term in this country, in the States, called food deserts, you know, in poorer parts of the country or, you know, poorer parts of, you know, big cities, there's a lack of grocery stores and good food. There's also kind of finance deserts because banks don't really care about poor people and they want to provide services to them. So in that situation, that's, you know, means crypto is a, uh, it's an opportunity, you know, for remittances, sending money overseas, you know, paying your friends. So this is interesting dynamic going on right now where 
a lot of younger people and, you know, a lot of people of color too, you know, this sort of Elizabeth Warren and Gary Gensler, the chairman of the SEC have this sort of patronizing line. They're protecting, you know, minority communities from crypto, which, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who think that's ridiculous because a lot of, you know, I know, uh, you know, people, uh, including, you know, people, um, sorry, I'm rambling here, but for certain communities who've been excluded from the financial system, um, you know, they don't trust the government and they have more faith in Bitcoin than they do the banks and the government. So that's something else going on right now, too, within the U.S. and, of course, overseas in places like Venezuela. And so so who are some of the leaders, you know, outside the U.S. where you feel like, you know, Venezuela is certainly an example with them kind of making it, you know, one of the legal tenders and currencies of, of, this, of the country. But who else are some of the leaders you'd say that are further along in adoption and also supporting this digital environment ahead of the U.S.? Um, yeah, I think you're thinking of El Salvador there too, where the president oh, has sorry, my uh, yeah. de- decreed Bitcoin to be legal tender. And a lot of people think that's great, but also, you know, that guy, his name's Bukele, uh, we're sort of, a lot of us are skeptical of him because he also seems like yet another Central American dictator. I don't think he should force Bitcoin down people's throats. So, but, you know, for better or worse, it is a leading place. Um, other places, um, you know, Switzerland has always done interesting things. The places in Asia, South Korea, Singapore, you know, a lot of Americans are decamping to Puerto Rico. So there's these sort of communities popping up all over. That's anything about crypto, too. It's such a global phenomenon that, um, you know, can be found anywhere. But, yeah, I think, you know, early leaders are, you know, Singapore, South Korea, Switzerland. Very cool. And then so, you know, certainly... Um a lot of people have been waiting for what the SEC um, and also, you know, what, how crypto and certain tokens will be treated, whether or not they're kind of securities or their currencies or what they are. Um, there recently was some news on that. Maybe you could walk everyone through what that news was and also um, what it sort of means going forward. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Joe Biden's uh, the you know the president, the White House issued an executive order, which sounds you know like a very big deal, and of course it is. You know, the president ordering the you know entire bureaucracy of the country to do something is, but all he said really was, "Come on, agencies, you know, get get it together," because the agencies like the SEC and the CFTC have been kind of fighting with each other and haven't put in clear rules. So that order hopefully will clarify it. And then meanwhile, the chairman of the um, SEC is a guy named Gary Gensler. Um, very, he's actually a very hated figure in the crypto community because he's sort of been on the war path to try to declare everything a security and to shut it down and to sue everyone involved in the industry, which, um, yes, there's tons of scams. People need to be protected. You can't go there selling, you know, investments, you know, willy nilly. But I think a lot of people point to him as a hypocrite because he made his money at Goldman Sachs. And, uh, you know, a lot of these investments, if you're a so-called accredited investor, I mean, you have like a million dollars or more, the rules don't apply to you. You can uh, you know invest in what you want. So it seems very paternalistic of uh, Gary Gensler to sort of go around scolding everyone saying, no, don't use crypto, it's all a scam. Well, he's sitting pretty as, you know, a very wealthy individual, you know, who made money through big banks. So, you know, this is all shaking out. You know, we're going to see what's happening. There's a big case involving um, the SEC against a, a crypto project called Ripple that should do a long way of, of clarifying whether, you know, how many of these, of these tokens are securities. If they are securities, of course, that's a world of trouble because you can't go around selling and licensed securities. And that will be a back from the industry but you know the industry is fighting back a lot and it's it's kind of a jump ball right now for how it's going to shake out and then just in terms of um you know when when an expected resolution um in the ripple uh case is kind of expected is that something that's in the near term or is that something that's still you know months to years out 
it's at least months out. And it's also possible that Ripple's actually done a surprisingly good job of dragging this out and in some cases embarrassing the, the, the SEC. They might not necessarily win, but uh, you know, it's the case is still there. They're just clearing up the procedural parts. So I don't think we're going to see a major ruling until uh, later this year or even next year. Very cool. And then, you know, when you kind of think about crypto and blockchain at large, I think a lot of people understand it for its investment utility, right? Is that this could be an asset that could appreciate in value. And so there's this whole trading component, having it be part of your portfolio. But I'm kind of curious also, just in terms of everyday consumers, you know, how else do you think that this will really impact their lives in a positive way? And how noticeable will that be to them? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's all along it's been speculation has been the primary use case for it. You know, often for worse, a lot of people made a lot of money, but a lot of people have like, you know, when there's a bubble gone in and bought, you know, they're called shit coins, you know, that are, you know, don't really do anything and are just kind of spun up to make money. But in terms of like practical use, I think we're seeing it now with NFTs, which are you know increasingly evolving as this new sort of technology for you know artists to sell to their fans and you know to share in the royalties of their favorite performers. Um, likewise, on the art scene, NFTs are sort of increasingly becoming like a pass to metaverse events. You know, I confess sometimes I'm still getting my head around it, but I think the potential of NFTs of having this unique identity where you can bring your attributes to different online realms. You can maybe go buy you know sort of an outfit a digital outfit in you know i don't know one metaverse and then walk into another or you know in the gaming community too i know a lot of gamers are deeply mistrustful of crypto because they're worried it's going to be used to debase the game and just be a money hustle but i think if done right it could make a huge difference you know the idea of to be able to you know take the the, the things you acquire in a one video game and bring it somewhere else i think is incredibly intriguing and also being able to use your avatars and identity without revealing your personal information to go walking into different realms of the internet. I think that's sort of the interesting future that's emerging. It's new and it's not easy to do yet, but that's what's coming. How do you, and, and just, you know, uh, in terms of the regulatory component, how do you think, especially around, you know, this private digital, not having necessarily full, you know, everyone understand your identity, doing certain these activities, how do you think that the government's going to balance this while making sure it's safe, but also, you know, allowing people to have some privacy? Yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question. I mean, the government is not unreasonable to want to, you know, sort of have know your customer laws. We don't really want, you know, terrorists and criminals having carte blanche to, you know, you know, it, launder their money through crypto things and that is legitimate worry but of course you know criminals use other things like apple gift cards are very popular with mexican drug cartels to be, move lots of money around but in terms of how it's going to shake out yeah i think you know just it's it's a boring answer but i think the more astute companies are working with the regulators to kind of try to come up with a framework so we can enjoy the best of both worlds have the increased anonymity that web3 can provide while also not you know turning it into a pure crypto criminal enterprise that the government wants to shut down. Yeah, it also be, it's, I mean, it's frankly in their best interest too, to help influence the outcome as opposed to just being, you know, uh, unhelpful and allowing, you know, the government to sort of um, construct some of these regulations on their own. Um, but I'm also curious, you brought up the Apple gift card for the, the cartels in Mexico. Uh, I, I've actually never heard this before. How does that kind of work? And also what type of, you know, true dollars can actually be moved around on these gift cards? 
I, you know, I mean, we'll think about it. Like if you're, you know, hundred dollar bills are, I think the, the favorites, you know, whenever people bash on Bitcoin or crypto is criminal, I do want to point out like American hundred dollar bills are the most popular source of, you know, criminal money because they're anonymous and they're light Apple gift cards. The idea is, you know, it's, it's preloaded value. They're small and you just get sort of a mule to go and take your drug profits, you know, or it could be an Amazon gift card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Point being, these are things that function kind of like money. You know, everyone can use an Amazon gift card or an Apple gift card and, you know, they're light and you can put like a bunch of value on them. So that's just an, another way to move money around, just like you can do with gold or hundred dollar bills or Bitcoin. So I, I made the point only because often yeah. crypto and Bitcoin is singled out as, you know, an intrinsically criminal tool, but it's not any more than those other things are. Well, it's, too, it's so much of it is also, I think the framing both in context of the media and also just what other people kind of see. It's really just how it's framed where I would have never thought about that around gift cards. I'm still kind of blown away, and I, I don't know if there are certain caps on the gift cards, but I'm just imagining a suitcase full of you know a thousand gift cards at a hundred dollars each to kind of move money behind the scenes. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a clever idea. I confess I've never laundered money with gift cards, but uh, you know I've certainly read a few stories about that. You know, but the, the, the bigger point too is yeah, the, the sort of panic over it. Um, and I, you know, I've said this repeatedly. It's like the early days of the internet when the internet first came along. It you know terrified the hell out of a lot of people. And critics were like, "This is nothing except for plagiarism, music theft, and child pornography." And you know, often it's, it's people who didn't really understand it. And blockchain, just like the internet, is a technology that can be used for good or bad. I mean the internet lets me, you know, connect with my mother to see my kid, you know, send emails to my old friends to watch, you know, read poems or watch movies, all wonderful uses. But the internet, of course, also has a dark side, you know, you can use it to stalk people and harass people and organize crime and things like that. But it's sort of silly to blame, you know, the, the bits floating through, you know, fiber optic tubes as themselves criminal. And that's sort of what blockchain is too. Depends what you want to do with it. You know, criminals can use it, but that doesn't mean it's, it's, it's some Something that you should, you know, get rid of or suppress because there's a lot of very beneficial cases too. Yeah, especially you know society at large and the the greater utility versus some, uh, I guess very, I would assume very small and minority uh, bad actors. So I'm kind of curious. We 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 always you know when we have folks that come on that that do like to talk about you know, the digital space, we often kind of, uh, you know, just ask them for kind of their views. Um, some of the things that we get asked quite a bit around are kind of the nuance differences between the metaverse and Web3, where they overlap and how they are in some ways distinctly different. I'm curious if you kind of have an outside perspective there. I mean, pick your buzzword too. I mean, it's, it's, um, who knows which of these terms is going to stick in the long term. Um, you know, it's like the early days people would talk about the world wide web, you know, and we just sort of call it the internet. Um, metaverse, I mean, I think refers more to kind of realms you can go and participate in activities like the, you know, board a yacht club or there's a sandbox. And I confess, I don't spend a ton of time in these places because, you know, I live in Colorado. I like to go skiing. I like to go hiking. I like to be outside with my kid. I don't really want to sit around in a digital room. But, you know, I think it is, it is growing quickly. Web three, I think is a broader idea of replacing web two, which is defined by companies like Google and Facebook, whose business model is to reap as much personal information about you as they can. And then to turn around and like, you know, bombard you with advertisements. The technology of web three is decentralized. 
where instead of having a single server, you know, owned by Facebook that collects all the data, it's distributed across blockchain nodes around the world, which offers, you know, a lot more opportunity for, for privacy and determining how you're going to interact with the internet and participate and create. And then a lot of this is like buzzwords and, you know, it's the irony is a lot of it's being driven by the same old venture capitalists who brought us <laughs> web, web two. I mean, the leading web three, uh, you know, entity is a venture firm called Andreessen Horowitz in Silicon Valley. And guess what? Their other, you know, earliest biggest investment was was Facebook. So you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt. But I do think there is a new paradigm and a new technology that's going to change how we, you know, interact online. And you know, it's it's actual how it's going to work out is still emerging. It's too soon to say, but the technology really is something to watch. I'm kind of curious just to follow up on this. People talk so much about you know this need to move to a decentralized world. However, there's still appear to be, you know, even excluding some of the VCs, like there still appear to be a very few set of influences that are kind of dictating much of what what, what happens, which while maybe not as centralized in the truest sense, still feels like there's a, a disproportionate amount of ownership by a very few, if you will. Yeah. And, and there's you know, been some really interesting Twitter fights over this, including between uh, Mark Andreessen, the founder of Andreessen Horowitz, and Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, who's since kind of gone all in on Bitcoin and more decentralized uh, tools. And you know, the reality is when you create a blockchain project, there's a whole bunch of tokens that can be used for buying things and governance and things like that. But increasingly you're seeing these new projects, you know, they'll issue tokens, but oh, guess what? Like there's a handful of insiders, including venture capitalists who own most of them. And then when the project evolves, they dump all their coins in the market and the people who buy them later, you know, are, are kind of sh not shut out, but shafted. Um, and this is a problem, but I think it's gonna get worked out. There's just, you know, tokens are, and blockchains are so versatile that there are good projects that are paying attention to this. I mean, I think Ethereum is an example of that too. Yeah, the early founders got rich as hell, but you know, Ethereum, I think today is very democratic and decentralized. Cool. So, so let's pivot for a little bit. Um, you know, you are the author of a book, Kings of Crypto, that I mentioned is part of the Harvard Business Review Press. Maybe you can walk everyone through a little bit about the uh, the book itself and also what you're seeking to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, I wrote the book because uh, there's you know a lot of other crypto books out there, but there wasn't a lot speaking in plain English because crypto is very technical and very insider and cliquey. So I want to tell the story of crypto, but in a way anyone could read, um, and you know, using the, the vocabulary of mainstream business and finance. I used Coinbase as a vehicle for it, just telling the story of Coinbase. You know, whether you like them or not. You know, there's a, one of my favorite books in business is one called Shoe Dog. It's by the founder of Nike, and it's just the history of Nike. But in reading it, you learn the history history of like how running became a thing in America and how athletic shoes became, you know, a fashion icon. And that's why I sort of use Coinbase as a way to tell the broader story of crypto because they help facilitate so much of it. And so many of the characters were there in the early days. You know, I think one of my favorite moments in the book is this woman named Katie Hahn, who's now one of the biggest crypto venture capitalists, but she started out as a prosecutor in San Francisco and her boss told her to go open a criminal case against Bitcoin. So she literally had to start this fire against Bitcoin to go and prosecute it. And then in the course of doing that, she met Coinbase and discovered, hey, wait a minute, you know, these guys aren't crooks. They're just nerds building a company. And, you know, so her, her sort of what she learned about it, both in prosecuting Bitcoin criminals, but then coming to embrace it and kind of getting converted to it. So there's a lot of stories like that. Likewise with, uh, you know, former people who worked at Goldman Sachs or, you know, other big, you know, Wall Street establishments becoming disillusioned with it and going into crypto. And a lot of that sort of revolved around the 
the Coinbase story. But the point of the book is just to use sort of like plain English to, you know, help people really understand what blockchains are, what crypto is all about, who the main people are. And also it's just kind of a good read because startups, you know, every startup is a fascinating story and Coinbase is no exception. And I'm kind of curious, um, you know, in researching and, and writing the book, what were kind of one of the two things that really that really just kind of blew your mind? Um, I just think the persistence of the early Bitcoiners, including Brian Armstrong of Coinbase, how these guys just believed in it so absolutely. It's almost, you know, it, it is a religion for these guys and girls um, that, you know, I, I just think that the commitment and believing this thing that looks like it's been killed so many times and the perseverance to go and build it into what it's today. Of course, they have the last laugh now because they're all billionaires. But I think that's something that really struck me. And then just the, 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 the nature of the people, people like Vitalik Buterin, who founded Ethereum. I mean, so many strange and brilliant people, some very bad people too, but their stories are, you know, I mean, tech was interesting, but the crypto crowd is just way more out there and they're, you know, they're full of crazy ideas. And a lot of those crazy ideas work in the communities they form and, you know, they have their own language and just the whole, the entire world is, it's just, it's, it's a new world. I think blockchain technology is the most important piece of technology to arrive in the 21st century. I mean, I suppose it'd be a toss up between iPhones and that, but I think blockchain is, you know, one of the top three techs. So that's what kind of blows my mind. Very cool. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up here. So I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, as you kind of sit back and look at the landscape, uh, what do you expect to have as your next book? <laughs> um, yeah, just heads up, writing a book is a lot of work. So I'm just going to, uh, <laughs> so one uh, and I'm done. taking a yeah, I'm taking. A, I might be one and done, but um, no, I just remain fascinated by the uh, you know the emergence of DeFi in this parallel financial world, and you know what the bigger story is or how to put it into a book. I don't know yet, but that's and just the battle for currency and the battle for the future money between you know the U.S. Treasury and China and Russia and the Bitcoiners, uh, just you know remaking how we you know how how we transact with each other. Um, you know, there's probably a book in there somewhere, but uh, let, let me get back to you when I when I have a firm idea. I'm, I'm just curious on that. You know, I, I Russia has always had um, an incentive to kind of, you know, uh, debase the world's uh, currency off of the US dollar, but they sort of get lumped in the conversation a lot more. I kind of view it as really being a battle between the US dollar and the Chinese yuan and maybe a little bit of the euro in there too, although they're certainly not active participants. Um, how come Russia keeps getting brought up in this conversation? Well, I mean, Russia is behind a lot of crypto projects, a lot of, uh, you know, Russia is a criminal state, you know, under Putin, the big source of their economy was gangsters who did cybercrime and Russians are very good uh, programmers. So a lot of the big hacks, like, you know, the colonial pipeline hack and all these ransomware things are out of Russia and cryptocurrency has facilitated a lot of that. Um, and I think the Russians view, uh, you know, making crypto succeed at the expense of the American dollar. You know, I don't think it's a zero sum game that way. But that's, I think, where Russia comes into it. Very cool. Uh, Jeff, any kind of parting thoughts for you? Anything we didn't discuss that you wish that we had? <laughs> no, great interview, Peter. That's. Uh, I would just, you know, say if you're curious about this stuff, read, read, read. Don't go out and buy the first, you know, shitcoin your friend tells you to invest in. But you know, read some books, uh, read Decrypt, and uh, you know, do your best to get your head around blockchain because it's going to be here to stay. Great, Jeff. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. As you know, we mentioned up top, uh, decrypt.co. Uh, you can find a lot of up-to-date information on what's going on in the crypto and blockchain community. To all of our listeners, of course, thank you as well. Do make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you do never miss a show. And we're also available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you again and see you next week.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.